everyone, welcome back to the fourth episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. This is a special episode because, well, it's about something near and dear to my heart. In this episode, I share a little bit about how I came to even study animal behavior, some of my early experiences with great apes, and talk with literary scholar Gregory Tague on what he likes to call an ape ethic. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Few people, other than perhaps my closest friends or longest friends, really know how I came to be interested in studying animal behavior. So while I was always interested as a kid in animals, something happened when I was about 18 years old that completely rocked my world. I was watching television and I was watching a National Geographic show about a gorilla orphanage in Brazzaville, Congo. And this gentleman, Michael Atwater, was running the orphanage for or on behalf of the John Aspinall Foundation. And I was smitten, not with Mr. Atwater, but with gorillas. And I decided, since I've always been a pretty decisive and headstrong individual, that I was going to go to the Congo and work at this gorilla orphanage. In those days, there wasn't any email <laughs> and there wasn't the internet. So what I did is I called National Geographic and they gave me the phone number for Mr. Atwater in Brazzaville, Congo. I called him and I said, hi, I'm Jennifer and I want to come to the Congo. I will say that he was very gracious, perhaps because he's British. And he said, well, who are you and what experience do you have? And I simply said, I'm Jennifer and I have no experience, but I really want to come there. So he told me to write a letter explaining what skills or abilities I had that could contribute and that then he would consider that. So I set about, I'm writing my letter passionate to convince this person that I should be permitted to travel all the way to the Congo and work at this orphanage. So I wrote my letter, sent it off, snail mail, of course, and went about going to college, taking my classes. In the interim, I was watching television again and I saw a news story about a sanctuary for chimpanzees and orangutans that was located maybe an hour and a half from where I lived in Miami, Florida. The director and still director, Patty Reagan, was talking about the mission of the sanctuary and why it was necessary. I was captivated and I thought, wow, there are great apes right in my backyard. I promptly reached out, set up an appointment and became a volunteer at the Center for Great Apes. That time it was located uh, at the back of Parrot Jungle in Miami and stayed with the organization uh, until I left for graduate school. I did get a letter back from Mr. Atwater 
on behalf of the Guerrilla Orphanage, which was very gracious and uh, kindly rejected my offer to go to the Congo, but did give me a packet of information about the orphanage, why it was necessary, and, and how things were going. I was okay with this rejection because, of course, I was now smitten and taken with my work at the sanctuary. And so for me, this episode is really special because, one, I get to talk about the Center for Great Apes, which I always love talking about. It is currently located in Central Florida, and it's still in existence. And the few apes that made up the original um, group of apes that started the sanctuary are still there, with the exception of a few who have since passed. And the sanctuary has grown to uh, over 100 individuals, both uh, chimpanzees and orangutans. And you can find out more by going to centerforgreatapes.org. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes. And part of this episode uh, includes talking to literary scholar Gregory Tague on something he likes to call an ape ethic. Um, he's also pretty diverse in, in terms of uh, working on art and culture and Chimpanzees and orangutans also have culture. And for these individuals that are located at the Center for Great Apes, art is a really big part of their enrichment. So I'm also going to include some paintings from some of the apes. And the organization really can use donations. They have an Amazon page, a wish list page, and also a direct list of things that they need. So please check out the show notes and, and get to know some of the individuals. These individuals come from a variety of backgrounds, uh, private homes. Uh, many are, are, are expats and many also have come from the entertainment industry. And so there's so many wonderful stories and, and this place has provided a safe haven and a second chance for many of these individuals to live their life peacefully and safely with people who care about them and do everything they can to give them the best life possible. One of the individuals that's recently arrived and is related to my conversation with uh, Gregory Tague is Sandra, the orangutan. And so she came from Argentina and she was recently, you know, given uh, a home at the Center for Great Apes after being granted personhood rights. So that brings me to my guest, Gregory Take. I'm really excited to have him on the show because, well, his perspective and contribution to animal well-being is really important and it's important to me. He's trained as a literary scholar, but he branched off into evolutionary studies about a decade ago. After having written and edited monographs and collections that dealt with English literature, he went on to combine science and literature. Ultimately, he broke away from literary subjects entirely and has devoted his time to write about art and adaptation and now great apes. Presently, he's working on another book about the evolution of veganism, uh, but we're going to spend most of our time talking about his book, An Ape Ethic. I want to welcome Gregory Tag to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Dr. Vertolin, for having me on the show. 
Oh, I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to you and, and to have the listeners hear about the work you're doing. Um, you know, I've, I've become familiar with your work in reading, um, one of your books, and we're going to talk about that in a, in a minute, but first, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? Yes, I am a professor in the departments of literature, writing and publishing and interdisciplinary studies at St. Francis College in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Wonderful. Um, I actually went to school in, at Stony Brook, so I didn't spend a lot of time in Brooklyn, but I am I'm definitely familiar with with the, the joys of living in New York. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you I know you transitioned and, and started integrating evolutionary thinking and evolutionary biology into your work? And we're going to talk about that really specifically. But what led you to choose the particular you know, a profession or work that you're doing? Well, that's pretty easy to answer. In the beginning, I was interested in the notion of character, and I was looking at that from a philosophical perspective. So I looked at literary characters from a philosophical perspective. I was influenced primarily by Arthur Schopenhauer, a 19th century German philosopher, who talked about character as fixed and immutable. And then there was another layer that could be influenced by the environment. Immanuel Kant had similar ideas, also a, a philosopher of the early 19th century. So I was doing that for a while. And then at some point they said, well, you know, I probably need to know how the brain works if I'm going to talk about character. So I started reading neuroscience. And then, of course, you, you can't read neuroscience without understanding biology. So that went down another path. And then, of course, reading the biology led me down yet another path about human origins. So that's sort of how all of this started. It was me trying to break out of the silo of the discipline. Right. You know, it's really interesting because... Um, many great thinkers, and I, I'm going to include you in that in that label, are very interdisciplinary, right? They and what you said about it, you went down one path and then another path, uh, and, and this kind of brought you to integrate different kinds of thinking into a new way of looking or new perspective, and and that seems to be to me a common theme uh, uh, of how new ideas come about is by really having a broad, um, perspective. And, and so, so that's really, uh, very cool. And, and, you know, I know that you must care about nature a lot because you write about it. So how do you connect with nature? Cause this show is, is really about our connection to other species, to the environment and to each other and ourselves. And I personally believe that we, can improve and enhance our lives and experiences and relationships by reconnecting with nature. So how do you connect with nature? Well, that's a great question. Somewhere in the late 1970s, I read a book and I often reread it, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. It's definitely my favorite book and probably one of those transformative works. I know everyone has a book 
or a movie that somehow has shaped him or her. Pilgrim at Tinker Creek was one of those books. And when I was a child, I was fortunate, even though we lived in pretty much the same neighborhood I'm in now in Brooklyn, we would go away every summer. And we went to this place that my grandmother owned. And it was pretty much a shack that had only electricity and cold water. There was no shower. There was no telephone, nothing like that at all. So we spent a lot of our time outside. This is in the early mid 60s. So the area around there had not been developed at all. And I would go up with my brother and my cousin and we would spend the whole day on what we called the hill. And we would do things like climb trees and then we'd go further up the hill and we we would find a brook and we would look at the lizards and the multicolored lizards and things. So that was a really transformative experience for me. And it happened every summer. Right now, it's a little difficult because I live in a townhouse in Brooklyn, but I make an effort. Mm -hmm. So I communicate with the squirrels and the birds as best I can. I try to give them little snacks and the neighbors, they're very annoyed. <laughs> they're very annoyed by this. And then we are involved in TNR, um, trap, neuter, and release of cats, feral yeah. cats. So I take care of some cats in the back under our porch. I have little shelters for them, and I feed them in the morning and the afternoon. We have possums. The possum comes by at night, or as my daughter would correct me, the, the opossum comes by at night. And, and he or she, I don't know, eats the leftover food from the cat. So, you know, we try as best we can to connect with nature here in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's funny that you talk about childhood and how much that was a formative experience in, in developing this way of relating to nature. I remember uh, I grew up in South Florida and at, at least in at that time, now we're talking the you know, late seventies. Um, I would climb the trees. I would dig around in the backyard. Um, and we would also, uh, go, uh, every summer to a small Island in the Bahamas. And I remember I was the only one of the siblings that would just wander through the forest. I, I made friends with an octopus once. Um, I thought we were friends. I mean, I'm not sure that the octopus agreed, but I would sit on the deck and, and just watch for hours, this little octopus doing its thing. And I believed anyway, that I had a special relationship with this octopus. <laughs> um, and so I still do that to this day, wherever I, I live, even though it's hard if it's in a really urban area. So I, I understand that what you're saying about that is I walk a path. I try to get to know the different animals that are uh, carving out their living on that path. And, and often I'll walk the same path repeatedly, um, and visit them daily and sort of check in and, and see how they're doing. So, um, so thank you for sharing that. And I, I worry that many kids don't get those kinds of experiences these days, um, that will connect them deeply to their environment. Um, so, Speaking of connected deeply to the environment, that kind of leads us right to your book, An Ape Ethic. Um, and for me, 
you know, my understanding, so please feel free to correct, correct me is, is you're, you're bringing forth this idea of, of ethical behavior by other animals and, and focusing a lot on the great apes and, and that they haven't, you know, unlike humans, they have, they don't willfully destroy and, and ravage their environments. They, they live harmoniously. Um, am I, am I doing a good job here summarizing kind of the premise and can you tell us yes. more? Okay. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, as, as you know, um, anatomically modern humans have not been around for a long time. Um, other species have been for apes and many other creatures. There's really no cognitive or ethical dissonance from their Mm -hmm. ecosystems in contrast to humans. They seem to embody a kind of eco-psychology that we've lost or some of us try to reimagine. And eco-psychology would be where the body, the mind, and the forest, in the case of apes, interact as if one. There's no disunity. So I might go out and take a walk in the park and then I come home and I go back to my old self. But that's not the case with other creatures. And the reason I focused on apes and I've gotten some heat on this because people say, well, you know, what are you trying to turn them into some um, prestige species? And no, that's not the case at all. It just so happened that in my reading of evolutionary studies, human evolution, then of course that went down the other path to great apes. So I just happened to know a little more about them than let's say beavers who might be also the consummate ecosystem engineers. Yeah. Yeah, I actually um, had a situation with a beaver that I think you're aware of um, and they are ecosystem engineers. Um, and I also studied prairie dogs, which are considered ecosystem engineers. And and just for for the listeners who may wonder, what does that term really mean? Um, it's, it's really uh, referring to the impact on uh, the environment but really a positive impact, not as, as we're very familiar with anatomically modern humans having a negative impact, but, but having a positive impact on the environment in the sense that they modify it significantly by the way they live their daily lives and they create new habitats, uh, for other species, or they modify an existing habitat. So beavers are really great for creating uh, new habitat, but also controlling flooding or creating spaces that help purify water. They, they do so much by just the virtue of the way that they live and prairie dogs are the same. Their activities of burrowing and, and turning the soil help turn nutrients over, which results in better plant growth, better food availability. Their burrows provide secondary homes for other species. And, and they basically do all of this for different habitats. And, you know, I had never thought about apes. So for all the people that gave you heat, I'm going, oh my gosh, what was wrong with me with not thinking about this? How can you, can you help uh, explain how you came to realize they're ecosystem engineers? 
Yeah. So, in fact, I'm going to backtrack a little to one of the earlier questions and try to answer that at the same time. So the book that you're referring to, An Ape Ethic and the Question of Personhood, Mm -hmm. tries to pull together three strands. One is the ape ethic. And that draws from environmentalist Aldo Leopold's 1949 book and the care for the inherent and not the economic value of an ecosystem. And great apes seem to exhibit this land ethic by virtue of their long sustained evolutionary adaptive success in tropical forest habitats. Tied to that, I have the notion of moral individualism Mm -hmm. because I'm never going to get very far away from philosophy. And this is coming from philosopher James Rachel's. And this works against any kind of utilitarian principles, looking for the greatest good for the greatest number or, or, you know, consequentialist principles. And instead calls for a focus on individual identity and autonomy. Willful actions and not just consequences are important, but at the same time, I'm not talking about self-interest. So the moral individualism of the ape affirms the moral state of the individual in relation to others in a shared habitat. And I suppose what I'm trying to assert, it's not so much a universal ape moral ought, you know, O-U-G-H-T, but rather an ape ethical ability. And then the other strand that ties into this is the ecosystem engineering, which, as you point out, refers to any animal, whether ant, worm, arctic fox, beaver, or human. Humans are or can be ecosystem engineers. But in my estimation, great apes, by virtue of their mentality, social behavior, and physical movements, stimulate and sustain the living components of large-scale biotic communities Mm -hmm. with positively widespread repercussions not seen in other species. So that's one of the reasons also why I focused on the great apes, because the tropical forests whether in Indonesia, Africa, or the Amazon, or the lungs of the world. Yeah, and, and, you know, we're losing them. Uh, A lot of people might think deforestation is no longer a problem. Uh, As you and I both know, it became really a concern even back in the 80s. And uh, there was a lot of effort to try to stem the tide of of that. And it doesn't seem that we've come very far. I want to come back to the moral individualism and ethical behavior and personhood question in, in a minute. But before I do, I, I really, you know, one of the things that you, you and I both, um, and many people look at the similarities between ourselves and other species and, and in particularly the great apes, there's always a lot of comparison Uh, and, and you focus a lot on the differences. So, so what do you think are some of the biggest differences between us and other apes? 
Well, for one thing, they live in a forest. We don't. We live in constructed, fabricated habitats. So I'm in a room with the doors closed in my house. They don't have that kind of separation. So any physical movement they make, it's as if the habitat is part of their being. That's where the eco-psychology comes in. Um, also, the book talks a little about notions of gestalt, you know, the wholeness, the, the holistic wholeness mm-hmm. of the individual in relation to the environment. And we've somehow lost a bit of that. Well, and, and I would say that there are many indigenous populations, so they might call it relational ecology, right, that still have... Uh, even though they're losing that ability rapidly due to deforestation, many indigenous communities are, are threatened with having to somehow adjust to no longer moving as one with their environment, right? So, so definitely contemporary Western um, society does not have that relationship, but many indigenous communities do. And so that's really interesting because I think that not only do, I I personally think not only do apes have it as well, but that other species do. And I think that we underestimate the trauma, the psychological trauma on other species of losing their homes um, and other uh, communities. We tend to think with humans, of course, if you have a hurricane come through, right, and, and, and your house is destroyed, we witness the grief that you have. And yet we're not able to understand that there's the same psychological trauma in, in other species and in, in great apes. Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of, of the psychological pain that we're inflicting on these species by destroying their homes? Yes, that's that's a great question. It's also a very complicated, and that would be a whole separate conversation. (laughs) Well, because you could focus even on just certain areas. Um, One of the ways I also got into this project is through primatologist Gary Shapiro. And he and his wife started a foundation called the Orang Utan Republic Foundation. Orangutan, mm-hmm. one of the great ape species, in fact, there are subspecies there, uh, means person of the forest. And Gary and his wife do a lot of work, not just in terms of caring for and helping the orangutans, but working with the human populations on the perimeters who live next to the orangutans, how to do sustainable farming and things like that, how not to don't shoot them when they come out and maybe they take one of your, you know, plants or something like that. And he also works with the Indonesian government because it's important to maintain these lands. What's happened over time is they've shrunk because of deforestation and then they've been turned into parks. But the ranging habits are so restricted that in some places in Africa, you know, chimpanzees are crossing roads. Mm -hmm. Um, They're living in and with human encroachments. So we have a kind of interspecies democracy going on in some places. Right. 
Yeah. Well, and so something else you talk about, which now is coming up for me, listening to you talk about, first of all, it's amazing the work that they're doing. And um, I'll include in the show notes, a link to that foundation. And so listeners can uh, find out more and, and if they can help, uh, then that would be great. Uh, I, and, and as uh, you may not know this, but I worked, uh, volunteered for many years for the center for great apes. And in fact, they have Sandra, uh, the orangutan, yes. right? So I saw that in your bio. Yes. yes I saw that. Yes. Yeah. So, so just a little background, cause you mentioned personhood too. And I know I don't want to zigzag too much. I want to kind of continue a thread, but we'll circle back to Sandra personhood and, and some of the work by Stephen uh, wise and, and talk about, um, personhood more, more in depth, but I think that there's this increasing tension between human, um, populations and other species as a direct result of our encroachment. And, you know, I have an episode I I'm doing coming up about, um, self-deception, uh, and I'm calling it eyes wide shut. And you talk about this as well in terms of, you know, the, it seems like to me, very few people recognize the inherent morality, ethics, and fairness that other species, especially even the great apes display. And I'm wondering how you think this ties to our seemingly endless capacity for self-deception. Legendary biologist, Robert Trivers who I'm happy to say we had at the college through part of my work in the Evolutionary Studies Collaborative, wrote a book called The Folly of Fools. And the book focuses on self-deception. Is self-deception important? Yeah, I mean, in fact, it may be a biological adaptation. I mean, we deceive ourselves quite often about things in order to get through the day, mm-hmm. you know, survive a relationship. but. Clearly, we've gotten to the point where we're deceiving ourselves as a species, eight billion strong, by thinking that we can take over every corner of the planet and use it only for our purposes. And then we're going to lose this biodiversity, which in fact... I mean, whether or not you agree with him, but, you know, James Lovelock's 1979 book, Gaia. I mean, you read that book and you understand that up until a certain point, up until a certain point, the Earth, whatever the reason may be, was a self-regulating system. It's like the Earth was an organism. And somehow we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we could fiddle with that to our advantage. I, I, I'm thinking that might be the answer to your question. Yeah. And, and we're, we're, we're so we're fiddling it with so much, um, in such a way that we are not seeing, uh, that it's, it's leading to our own demise, but I am wondering how much of that self-deception plays into the collective rejection, not by people like me or you and and even many others of of giving personhood rights to other species. I know that landscape is changing. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what personhood for other species and and especially non-human uh primates uh and great apes means and and why you think it's a useful position to take? 
Okay, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned lawyer Stephen Wise, who has done an incredible amount of work with his non-human rights project. And he's had a number of lawyers working with him and philosophers. And one of the briefs that was put together by philosophers, I've read it, it, it became a book called Chimpanzee Rights. It focuses a lot, a lot, a lot on the rational similarities between us and great apes. I mean, there are other things in there. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but to make it simple, mm-hmm. um, in a lot of these conversations, it's always been, oh, you know, apes are like us. And in fact, it was at one point, this is going back in time before Franz the Wall was involved in the Yerkes Primate Research Center. I forget his name, King. I think his name was King. And he justified um, experimentation on great apes because they are like us. Well, I'm taking a slightly different approach and I'm not negating the fact that they are like us because they are, and we are apes. And there was a common ancestor between us and chimpanzees and we're really, really close to bonobos as well. Yes. But I'm trying to focus more on the differences, the differences such as their eco-psychology, the fact that they have lived for millennia in these lands and have sustained them. The fact that their low birthing rates might actually be an adaptation. The fact that, and this is where biologists would really get ruffled because of the things I say, (laughs) that they may even have a form of kin selection with the forest. They know on some level that they need the fruiting trees and the leaves and the termites in order to survive. So somehow as a net result, it may not be conscious. And Clive Jones, when he set up this eco-engineering idea many years ago, uh, he didn't even want to get into the notion of conscious intent. But, you know, it doesn't have to be a conscious intent. I mean, we do many things throughout the day and we don't have some conscious intent, but there is a net result. Now, I know that's not the answer to your question, but I'm getting getting to it. <laughs> okay. And I do so, have a thought about that as a biologist. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, I was just going to say that I know from studying other primates, so capuchin monkeys, and studying their foraging patterns and their spatial memory of when they visit fruiting trees, they don't do it at random. They, they seem to have a sense of time. Uh, and so again, whether it's conscious or not, when a fruit tree is fruiting, they don't all descend on it and strip it bare and destroy the tree. They harvest a, a certain amount that is what we might call optimal. And then they move on and they don't revisit that site until sufficient time has passed for it to regenerate. And they seem to intuitively understand in some way, however, they're tracking time and space. They may revisit it and decide, oh, no, we're not feeding here. There's just not enough resource. So I think that I don't uh, my feathers are not ruffled at all by what you said. And I think that we can look at the way the patterns that that other species visit resources 
and including primates and 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 I'm certain great apes, um, chimpanzees that feed uh, on fruiting trees also exhibit similar uh, patterns. It, it, it makes perfect sense to me what you just said. Yes, a lot of people have written about, and I go into some detail in the book about, for instance, the uh, seed dispersal. Mm-hmm. That, that's an important component of this. Well, the thing that I thought might ruffle people's feathers is by me saying that, you know, the great apes have this kind of kin selection with the forest, which, you know, that's not what the kin selection theory is. But sure. It, They're not separated from it. Their body is part of the forest. But getting back to the personhood. So Stephen Wise and others, um, philosophers, not taking anything away from them, they might focus on the rational similarities between us and great apes. And then there are political philosophers, people like Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka. And they wrote a book called Zoopolis. And they argue for a fundamental change in human political thought that grants inviolable rights to all animals. Okay, so you would agree with that, I would agree with that. But where we might seem to differ is in my use of the word personhood. Okay. Donaldson and Ken Lecca would say that granting personhood to one species diminishes all others. And that's where I take some of the heat All right, maybe that's true, but it depends on how we're using the word personhood. So Donaldson and Kimlicka are political writers, and I admire them. I'm not criticizing them at all, but their conception of person is more to the legal and less to the biological. And I'm not trying to legislate who is or who is not a person. I use the word in a figurative sense so that readers of the book can grasp the depth and range of the moral and ecological character of apes. Mm -hmm. The expression of person has more clout than the face value of the word animal. And besides, I qualify the word person, forest person. So in this conversation, we're saying personhood, but very often I say, well, forest person. And anyone can see from the title of my book that I admit there's a question of a personhood. So in terms of the truly non-polluting and sustainable ecosystem engineers, humans are inferior to apes, but we are nonetheless apes. Correct. No, I, I agree with that. And, you know, it's interesting because, uh, there's, there's a lot, so, so a lot of people, scientists will get their feathers ruffled at the word personhood applied to any other animal, including the great apes. And as someone who has studied personality in other animals, I can tell you that they've come up with a word, they call it behavioral syndrome to replace personality. And the big objection to using what would describe my personality or your personality for say an orangutan or a chimpanzee or a dolphin or a spider is the word person. (laughs) That's their big objection. So they've come up with a name that makes it sound like a disorder, uh, a syndrome. And, uh, I find, you know, this resistance to, uh, not just having, uh, 
some some ethical and moral and and approach to how we interact with other species, <clears throat> but also this uh, splicing and dicing to always keep anatomically modern humans separate from um, other species in these special talents and abilities that we want to think that we have. And yet, as you point out, when it comes to relational ecology or, or, or a cycle, you know, the, the eco ecological psychology, we are quite inferior to, uh, the apes and other species. Um, <clears throat> what do you think the impact is, uh, how, what do you think the impact of this discussions and these concepts of, of personhood are having on species in captivity? The impact on, pardon me, what was that last part? Uh, on, on other species that are in captivity and, and the push for change in how yes. we keep other animals in, in environments that are unnatural to them. Well, you mentioned Sandra. So I know a little about this, not a lot. Sandra was, is, well, was an orangutan in an Argentine quote unquote zoo, but she was there by herself for a long time. And there was some intervention that involved Gary Shapiro and a few other people to try to demonstrate to a court that she's a person. And there was a judge that was amenable to this as was in New York State with a couple of the judges that heard the cases by Stephen Wise, but they didn't go with the full length. Mm -hmm. So what happened with Sandra is that she was permitted to leave Argentina, and then now she's at the Center for Great Apes. So there is some recognition because of the work of Stephen Wise. Stephen Wise has also um, submitted legal papers in terms of elephants. Right. And the United States government, which was one of the biggest funders of research on chimpanzees and other great apes, has basically stopped that practice. And that's why we have a lot of sanctuaries ape sanctuaries. So if your listeners are willing to, and I'm not making a pitch because I have nothing to do with these places, but um, there are lots of sanctuaries that are now caring for these people, these persons yeah. into their, in their retirement until it's their time to leave the planet. So there has been some headway made. Yeah. But we still have a way to go. No, I, I agree. And I, I, I think we do have a long way to go. I will say, you know, I, having been associated and still associated with the Center for Great Apes, it is a place that is very special. And, you know, there are there are many sanctuaries and and this one in particular does not take in biomedical uh, retired biomedical uh, apes. Uh, they focus on the entertainment industry or situations like Sandra and she's doing very well. <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful place. Uh, listeners can go to centerforgreatapes.com. You can read the stories because these these are individuals, as you said, they're people, and they have stories. 
and they have suffered, many of them have suffered intense traumas. It takes a lot of healing. Some of them have never seen another chimpanzee or orangutan. And it's quite frightening for them. And there's a period of adjustment, but they are in a, in a, a wonderful place. It t- takes a lot of resources to look after the well-being of these individuals for the rest of their lives. And so, and I know there was recently an elephant that was transported because there was some pressure from celebrities to get this elephant who was alone. I forget his name, um, but it was relatively recent. And my worry, I guess, and I don't know how much you worry about this is, you know, people seem willing to accept, okay, elephants are smart and apes are like us and dolphins are really smart. So these charismatic, similar to us species usually results in a great push to, um, you know, do something about individuals that are in this situation. And yet there's such a dissonance between then pushing to save their wild homes or all these other species that are also individuals, but they don't seem to be like us or as smart as us. So do you have any concern about if we restrict sort of personhood to the great apes or where does the, where's the line on personhood for other species? Is there one? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I I can't really answer that in too much detail because I don't have the answer. I mean, it was pretty easy with the apes because of the similarities. And then what I saw as what I see as the differences, the positive differences. And, you know, we don't want to really create this kind of hierarchy. Charles Darwin wrote a whole book about worms. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned them, I think, in the beginning. Worms are important. Yes. They turn the soil. They aerate the soil. Right. So does that mean we, and they have brains. They have a quote unquote brain. It's very simple. Does that mean that we have to grant them personhood? I don't know. Uh, You know, as I say, I'm not a philosopher, influenced by philosophy, but I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not a political scientist. So we can have those conversations and maybe some of your listeners want to initiate some kind of action on that part. But I, I have no idea where it's going to go, because right now, even with these quote unquote prestige species, mm-hmm. elephants, apes, dolphins, you know, we're, we're fighting a battle. And I, I don't know. I mean, we win some scuffles, but not enough. Right. Okay, my listeners, I am talking to Gregory Tag. I'm this is such a wonderful conversation. And, you know, we're talking about this way that we relate to the environment, the way that other we're inferior in how we relate to the environment. So that's making me think about our food sources and the way that we feed ourselves with uh, and, and with impunity almost on the impacts for other species. So you're working on another exciting project and, and I don't want to spill the, all the beans, but can we talk about uh, veganism and the evolution of veganism and really maybe ethical veganism um, in terms of, of what you're working on next and where your thinking is going? 
Yes, yes, sure. Um, I'd like to back up a little. Okay. Just mention that in December of 2019, I was sitting at night, as I often do with my wife, Frederica Jacks, and we were just chatting. And I don't have these moments too, too often, but I had an idea. And I said, wow, you know what? Let's start a journal and let's call it Literary Veganism. We're, we're vegans, mm-hmm. if you haven't guessed. <laughs> and that's what we did. So if your listeners are interested in veganism at all, just curious about it. There's plenty of stuff on the Internet. But you might be interested in checking out our journal, Literary Veganism. There are resources there about how to become a vegan, but it's really a literary journal. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be a vegan to submit. And in fact, most of the work that we've published, poetry, um, science fiction, short stories, artwork, many of the people are not vegans, but they are at least consciously aware of the envi- they're environmentally and animal friendly. Right. And in fact, I, I will plug here that you have been gracious enough because of the story I shared about a beaver to invite me to write that story for the journal. So I, I just want to thank you. I'm very honored and I'm, I'm working on it. And so um, I've seen the, the Literary Veganism Journal. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. And what a wonderful project. And I'll put links to that also in the show notes so so listeners can uh, go and, and discover uh, some of those, those great submissions and contributions and resources. So to answer your question, um, yes, I am working. I, I promised my family I would not write another book. I have a heavy <laughs> teaching load, a heavy service load. You know, I have an old house I have to take care of. Don't write any more books. Well, okay, here I am. So I, it had something to do with the pandemic and the lockdown. There were some connections. But because I had known this is a different book. In fact, I see this book as a footnote to an ape ethic, because in an ape ethic, I spend a lot of time talking about their um, abilities, their their cognitive intellectual abilities, their many forms of social behavior and how all those things relate to their habitats their ecosystems and how they maintain the ecosystems. But I don't really spend, I didn't spend a lot of time in there talking about food. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. So it got me thinking about food and what we eat. So we happen to be what are called ethical vegans. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're smarter or more superior than anyone else. It just means that following the virtue ethics of Aristotle, here we come with the philosophy again, right. <laughs> that we make the best effort we can to avoid eating or using any animal products. And we, of course, are against any kind of animal cruelty. Now, there are other forms of veganism, and one can even be a vegetarian. I mean, we started out, um, when my wife and I first got married, we recently celebrated our 25th anniversary. We had given up red meat. So we hadn't eaten that in a long time. And then gradually, and it wasn't easy, it took a long time, we eliminated white meat, turkey, chicken. 
mm-hmm. but we were still using dairy. And then at some point a few years ago, I have distinct recollections of going through all these like oat milks and all this other stuff to put in my tea because I'm a tea drinker now. <laughs> and I couldn't find anything. So I said, you know what? Why even bother? I, I just drink tea the way. Right. So I spent time in this book talking about food. It's really about food, ecology, and culture. We, as human beings, have a long, complicated evolutionary history. And we came from a constellation of species that included australopiths. And there are many, many australopiths. They were primarily leaf eaters and fruit eaters. And somewhere along the line, I'm oversimplifying a very complicated lineage here, but somewhere because of pressures from the environment, the changing environment about three million years ago, where the forests started to shrink, um, there was a pressure for food. And what likely happened from the scholarship I'm reading is that kills by big cats would have been left. And some of our early hominin ancestors, these australopiths came out of the woods and would forage and probably started eating a little meat. Mm -hmm. And then this escalated much more later with the advance of stone tools. By then we're getting into the true homo species, homo habilis, and so on and so forth, homo erectus, mm-hmm. which kind of lead into us. But the point I try to make in this writing is that culturally, we don't have to eat meat or dairy. And if we could cut back significantly on meat and dairy, because it's part of our cultural evolution, mm-hmm. I mean, think about, you know, we evolved to stop having milk as adults, but we we still do it. Why do we still do it? Because it's part of our culture. Right. We don't have to do that anymore. If we can evolve a culture that moves away from intensive farming of beef, pork, chicken, dairy, the the thing that's going to help us is that it it will benefit our health and the environment. And I cite a billion studies on all of this. But if I could just say one other thing. Sure. Andrew Hoffman wrote a book around 2015. Um, I forget the exact title, but it deals with climate change. And, And he goes on to say how no matter how many facts or statistics you throw at people, the chances are they're going to continue to do what they've always done. Right. So this is kind of an uphill battle, but it has a lot to do with a sub area of mine called cultural evolution. Yeah. Well, so there's so much there that I think is so important to, to talk about. So, I, I want to make sure that we let listeners know when your book is coming out because they they definitely need to read this. I will say I am I don't eat meat, but I do eat fish uh, still probably twice a month. 
I'm very picky about what kind um, of fish I'll eat, uh, wild caught, sustainably, you know, the best choices I can. Um, And I struggle with that, you know, still. It's the uh, only thing I eat that has a face on it. And, um, but I, I do teach a class called wildlife conservation and culture. And in there, there's a section that deals with our relationship with, uh, wildlife and nature as a food source. And in my research, and I'm wondering if this is what you were also really saying and, and not really alluding to, but saying directly, meat has never really been prominent in human diets as the main source of nutrition. In fact, it is pretty rare for a very long time. And the advent of agriculture and animal farming shifted this um, culturally to now being the predominant source of protein when one, it's not necessarily healthy. And two, of course, it's led to a suite of other problems, both for the animals, the environment, and for ourselves. So, so this, what I s- struggle to explain to people is that if you, even if you ate meat twice a month, that would be fine nutritionally, biologically. But I don't know when it happened that really culturally there was a shift to meat being a part of or, or animal products in general, being a part of every single meal. Do you, were you able to kind of pinpoint when this happened? It probably started going back about eight or 10,000 years ago when humans settled right. and started farming, farming crops, and also having on hand animals from which they could either get milk or they started slaughtering them and using them for meat. So it's probably around then that the meat became predominant. But, you know, it's important to know that there are cultures who either don't eat meat because of religious or cultural reasons, or they simply can't afford it. Right. And we don't need protein from meat. Can I prove that? Yes. Take a look at a mountain gorilla. Right. Take a look at a silverback. What does he basically survive off of? Right. Leaves. Right. Right. Yes. And I will say that the struggle for many, the one nutrient that I have struggled with, I can't speak for others, um, to replace has been um, B12. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes. Let's talk about that. (laughs) Help me. Yeah, that can be a problem. Right. So B12 is a con- I, 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 I may have, I'm stammering because I don't want to sound like I know everything about everything. Um, <laughs> I know a little about this. B12, it has something to do with bacteria in soil. So uh-huh. we tend to wash our plant foods so thoroughly that they lose the B12. Meantime, you put a cow to pasture, the cow is out there you know, chewing on the grass and stuff like that. That's where the B12 is coming from. B12 doesn't naturally occur in a cow. Right. (laughs) It's from this bacteria. So, but it's very easy. Any of your listeners are interested in, you know, making some kind of gradual shift. There are B12 supplements. Yes. 
Yeah. And you can get B12 in nutritional yeast. Now, I know that sounds kind of disgusting, but believe me, I use nutritional yeast. You put it on pasta, it's, del- it's delicious. Right. Yeah. I think the, the name yeast throws a lot of people go, what? <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, so I take B12 supplements. It's it's definitely the one thing that and, and you know, because of industrial crop farming, we do need to wash things thoroughly. Um, unless you're, you're growing your own food and making sure that other animals aren't excreting all over your garden patch, um, you would want to wash things, but we also don't eat as diverse a diet as gorillas. Um, and look at their, their diet profile. They include vast, vast quantities of different types of plants. Yes. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but in fact, I go into this in the book and I don't have a publisher yet for the book, so, but I, I'm hoping it, it's, it's under consideration right now with one press, but we'll see. Okay. But one of the things I did in the book is I contacted 21 primate sanctuaries, 40% responded and they basically confirmed what I thought. So it, it's not like they're throwing raw meat right. at these chimps in sanctuaries. They give them, the list I include is unbelievable. There are like hundreds of different types of fruits, mm-hmm. vegetables, herbs. If they get some kind of an animal product, it might be in a primate chow. If the primate chow is not vegan, they might be getting some kind of animal product in there, but even in the sanctuaries, right? unless they eat something outside, they might eat a turtle outside, they might eat a lizard outside, you know, and they eat insects, but humans eat insects as well. Right, right. Yeah. In fact, I discovered spaghetti squash many, many years ago because um, we, we served it to the, um, the apes and I remember thinking, well, this is really clever of squash that's like spaghetti. And, and, and it's a, a staple now in my diet. Uh, but that's where I first discovered a lot of different uh, vegetables and fruits that I had never been exposed to growing up. Uh, just by the sheer diversity of what, what they get in their diet. So, you know, this kind of brings me, well, I, I do want to point out that how much meat is a cultural, um, how, how, how deeply embedded it is in cultural. And it became partly also part of mating kind of status that happens in chimpanzees as well. Um, it's rare, but they do, uh, hunt monkeys and, dominance hierarchy kind of goes out the window in once, uh, there's a, a kill, uh, they, even the dominant male, the alpha male, so to speak, will have to beg for a piece. Um, and it's, uh, there was a paper that showed that it can be used sometimes to secure sexual favors. And, you know, I, I wrote about this a little bit in wild connection where, uh, many women I know that do eat meat when they've gone to the butcher, they get special cuts of meat if they're considered more attractive um, culturally. And they get extra meat, they get different cuts of meat. And so so there's a real cultural component, but it is, I think, many, many people who shift to veganism, and I don't know 
if this was the case for you, it's a rejection of the industrial farming and the treatment of animals. Um, do you see that happening more and more or, or do you think that, um, we are, are still having, we're, we're never going to get to the point where we go back to very rarely eating meat, if at all, for many people and, and upending the, industrial farming monolith that has taken over food production? Yeah, that's a complicated question. But yes, uh, chimpanzees will use meat for sexual favors and dominance Mm -hmm. allegiances and things like that. Carol Adams, about 20 years ago, wrote a book called The Sexual Politics of Meat. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's I got to read that book. Yeah. I mean, even among humans is a sexual politics of meat. And I don't know, maybe that's from our common ancestor. I, you know, it's been what right. the chimpanzee is hard to say. Now, where this is going, I don't know. And this could be a much longer conversation because then you get into things like in vitro lab meat. And, and what's the place of something like that where they take cells from a living animal? They're doing this already. Right. And they make this kind of fake meat out of it. Um, all I can say is that... We can evolve culturally quickly. And that's what we do mostly as humans. I mean, we're evolving in a cultural way more than a biological way. So it's up to us what kind of choices we want to make. You have someone like Joaquin Phoenix, who is committed to animal rights. And then you might have some other people who go into a vegan diet um, just as a fad. Right. So it depends, you know, what kind of cultural evolutionary paths one is going to go down. But I spend a lot of time in the book. It's not a blueprint, but, you know, I talk about schoolyard gardens, kitchens related to schools that could help young people understand the, the health benefits of, of a plant diet. Mm-hmm. Um, the borough president of Brooklyn, Eric Adams, was a diabetic. He switched to a plant-based diet and he cured his diabetes. Right. So he became a kind of vegetarian vegan for a different reason, a health reason. But that's really what I try to promote actually in this book. I don't spend so much time talking about animal rights Mm -hmm. because that's been done before and people hear that and they shut down. Right. So I try to spend a lot of time showing that because of our evolutionary past, and because of how great apes eat, we can culturally evolve away from industrialized farming because it's killing us. Yes. And and it's killing us in so many ways. And I will say there's even a I think there was a San Diego Chargers football player. He's vegan and he's he's not, you know, a slender running back. <laughs> or white vegan weightlifters. Yeah. Yes, weightlifters who are right. vegan. So this idea that you have to eat meat in order to be physically strong and uh, healthy is is a real illusion. And I think a lot of the not only diabetes but many of the sort of diseases 
um, or dis-ease that our bodies have is in response to our diets. So I, I will leave it there and, and say that, you know, we're definitely going to have you back when your book is coming out. The last thing I want to talk about, and then I promise I will let you go. I was very excited to see a project that you've worked on that centered on the evolution of visual art and, and, and how art might be adaptive. And because I know, or I believe that other species, including great apes have the capacity to create some kind of visual art. Um, I wanted to know if you could just say a few words about that project and what you think about art as adaptive. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. Um, you're referring to a book that came out in 2018 called Art and Adaptability. And it actually sprang from a presentation that I put together on art and adaptation. And in that presentation, I have a watercolor. I, I forget the chimp person's name, but it's a watercolor that was given to me by Patty Reagan. Yep. From yep. one of the, you know, chimp people down at that sanctuary. Yeah, I, I could talk about this a little. Um, and I'd like to relate it to the apes. So Sean Thompson, he wrote a book called The Intimate Ape. And he tells how primatologist Berute Galdikas was surprised when Siswi, a female orangutan, seized her notebook and pen and began drawing. Hmm. We wanted to participate in Galdacas's activity to demonstrate her competence and companionship. Siswoyo, Siswi's mother, also used pen and paper and was quite careful in how she used the stylus. Hmm. According to Galdacas, this is not simple imitation, but social bonding where the orangutan wants to assert her level of equality with the human. And then Thompson has some other stories in his book. Willie Smith, now Berute Galakas, for those who don't know, is a legendary primatologist, and she's still working over in Borneo. Willie Smith is still there as well, in a different part of Borneo, I apologize, I forget, where he does a lot of conservation work. Right. He had an encounter with an orangutan, Uchi. Uchi was an infant orangutan rescued and raised by Smiths and then released into the wild after two years. Some years later, Smiths encountered Uchi in the forest accompanied by a male. There was a mutual recognition between the human and the orangutan along with touch greetings and eye gazing. Uchi let Smiths hold her baby. Then Uchi bit off and shared with Smiths a certain type of leaf. Mm. Apparently, when Smiths first released Uchi into the wild years earlier, and when she was reluctant to go, she had shared the same species of leaf. He had shared the same species of leaf with her for reassurance. Right. So it was kind of a symbolic gesture. And I have another one. I mean, it's amazing to think that, you know, this gesture 
has a kind of symbolism to it. Mm-hmm. There's another one that involves Willie Smith's. There was an orangutan who made a disc from an orange peel and wrapped it in strands of burlap. He gave this token to Smith's as a gift and actually placed it in Smith's hand and closed the man's fingers over it. Mm. So there is something in our evolutionary heritage that goes way back. Right. Now, that book, which would be a very long discussion, and I'm sure your listeners want to go, (laughs) I simply argue that art forms is a means of cognitive communication. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's that's how it evolved. That's how art, what we call art, it came from material art through this kind of cognitive communication cognitive culture and consciousness. Right. Well, thank you for all of those stories and for the explanation of, of how and why you thought or you think that art emerged as we know of it today. And I have another story to add to yours uh, that involves maybe the, the, artist of the painting you have. Uh, I have several. I'll post a picture of uh, a painting from one of the most special individuals I've ever met, uh, Grubb. He he died in 2011. He was one of the original members of the first members of the sanctuary, uh, the Center for Great Apes, run by, as as you mentioned, Patty Reagan. And Grubb had a proclivity for masks. So what you were saying about, you know, uh, wrapping the, the orange into with burlap and offering it as a gift and, uh, and also this establishment of equality or sharing and, and, and symbolism of the relationship, Grubb wanted everyone to wear masks that he made. <laughs> now, he didn't give them to everyone. He was quite selective about who he made a mask for and then would give it to them and, and, and want them to put it over their face. Jane Goodall has a mask that Greb made for her. And essentially this was, this was a really special thing, right? Uh, it wasn't for every human that he interacted with. It wasn't for every human that he knew, but for whatever reason, for certain people, he would find whatever he could and he would put poke two holes for the eyes and then give it to you and, and essentially gesture for you to put it over your face. That's a great story. Yeah. And I, I never thought about it as, um, as art or as a, um, symbol, right. Of, of the, the relationship. I never thought about it that way. So I'm really appreciative of what you shared because now I'm reevaluating what Grubb was really doing and what he was communicating. And so, so I want to thank you so much for taking this time to share with everyone, um, so much so about your book, the an ape ethic and your, your other work, the literary veganism journal and your upcoming book on the evolution of veganism and in, in your perspectives on art and really what a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Gregory. 
uh, Tag, for joining me and sharing all of this with my listeners. Well, thank you, Dr. Verdelin. It was my pleasure. All right, everyone. Thank you. And that's the end of the show. Please check out the show notes for links to all of the information about our guest, Gregory Tague, as well as links to the Center for Great Apes, where you can donate. Please do if you have the means to do so. And also check out the wonderful art by several of the apes. Thanks for listening. And if you are enjoying the show, please subscribe and share. That's how people will find it. 